0: M&A, the new R&D. This is Industry Focus. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, Healthcare Edition. I'm your host, Christine Hargis. We've got Motley Fool Healthcare contributor Todd Campbell on the line. It is December 16th, 2015. And it has come to my attention that one of the other industry-focused podcast hosts, Sean O'Reilly, put in a plug recently that I'm a bourbon fan, which is not wrong. And what he very selflessly forgot to tell you, and here's me just returning the favor, is that he is also a fan, particularly of Woodford Reserve. It's maybe an industry-focused-wide thing. I don't know. Todd, are you in the bourbon fan club as well?
1: I am. I am. Although I found that I'm, I'm pretty partial to Rye lately.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. Tastes all over the place. (laughs) Um, So... Duly noted. Um, it's a little insight into our Christmas lists and also some <laughs> Friday afternoons here at Fool HQ. <laughs> so The inspiration for today's episode comes from an episode of Market Foolery that I recorded with the stellar Chris Hill and my fellow healthcare analyst Michael Douglas earlier this week, in which we talked about some of our favorite healthcare stories from 2015, some best stocks and top headlines, uh, We're CEO, Cough Cough Scurly. Uh, it was a really fun episode. Check it out uh, when you get done with this one. One of the things that we talked about as a top healthcare story in that show was the surge in MMA or mergers and acquisitions, and really this has been a key theme for the year more broadly than just healthcare.
1: It is huge. I mean, this is a record year, not only in terms of the the, the number of well deals in healthcare, but also in terms of the number of deals that are occurring everywhere in the market. You know, this is. In, in total value terms, this is the biggest year on record, um, surpassing you know 2007, uh, which was the last year that you know ominously potentially I don't know uh, that we had um, uh, so many deals being done, uh, and the numbers are just absolutely staggering. You know 4.6 trillion dollars in M&A deals um, across all sectors, uh, 18,600 plus deals. Um, have been done, and and a lot of those deals occurring within the healthcare s-
0: space. Yeah, it's been the biggest year for M and A both globally in across all the sectors, and also definitely within the healthcare space. I mean, we saw the biggest healthcare acquisition ever announced earlier in November, and this was, of course, Pfizer and Allergan.
1: Yeah, for the first nine months of the year, so not even including. Uh, Pfizer's Allergan deal. You know, we had 268 different pharmaceutical deals that were done uh for 231 billion dollars in value. So, you know, just you throw the 160 billion on top of that for the the Pfizer bid for Allergan and you know, you're talking about half a billion dollars in in deals in the pharmaceutical industry alone.
0: Yeah, and Pfizer had been in a bunch of talks recently regarding M&A. I mean, there was uh, the failed bid for AstraZeneca. There was uh, they uh, bought Hospira back in February, and I actually, I think that's kind of a more interesting story than the Allergan deal, even though it was way smaller, only seventeen billion. Only.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, obviously, this deal for Allergan is is huge, right? I mean, one hundred and sixty billion, right? Um, and but a lot of the deal benefit. You could argue is is because of the tax inversion component of it, meaning that you know you're going to move your headquarters on paper at least out of the U.S. in order to save on taxes. And I think that the projection you know that has that the company offered out there is that their tax rate will fall to about 17 to 18 uh, percent, down from 24 and a half percent. Now you know Allergan obviously has Botox and other drugs that are you know single-digit plus growers. Um, but I don't think that, that you know, I, I, I tend to favor the Hospira deal because I think that could actually be uh, more transformative over time, uh, solely because, you know, the Hospiria deal gets them now into a leadership position in what's the burgeoning, brand new nascent market of biosimilars, which are the, um, for lack of a better term, the generic equivalent of a lot of these high priced biologic drugs. Um, that dominate healthcare spending today.
0: Yeah, and this is a, an enormous story—the the boom of biosimilars. And actually, one of the things that we highlighted in that marketfulery episode earlier this week because this could really be transformative for the entire healthcare space. I mean you've got about a hundred billion dollars of biologic medicines that are slated to lose their patent protection in the next five years. Pfizer itself is saying that the addressable market for biosimilars should climb from three billion this year all the way to twenty billion in the year twenty twenty. So In buying Hospira, it gets its foot really firmly in the door of this important market. And at the time of the deal, uh, about 68% of Hospira's sales were coming from specialty medicines. But that's because the biosimilar part has just started to take off.
1: Yeah. You know, biosimilars have been available in, in overseas markets in Europe for years. But the FDA has been slow to embrace them because there really wasn't you know, a clear pathway that was established to say, okay, if a drug isn't exactly the same, can we still approve it and call it a generic? Um, you know, biologic drugs are created in living organisms, so it's virtually impossible to precisely duplicate them. So once healthcare reform came in and, and a pathway was established, the floodgates, if you will, are set to, to open. And the first of, of biosimilar to be approved in the U.S. happened already this year. It was a drug from Novartis. Uh, and many more are coming, especially with high-profile patent expirations um, uh, about to happen. For example, the, the Humira, the top-selling autoimmune disease drug at AbbVie, uh, set to lose patent protection at the end of 2016.
0: Yeah, and speaking of AbbVie, they had a pretty big buyout, too, in March. That one was PharmaCyclics for $21 billion.
1: Yeah, Humira accounts for 61% of uh, AbbVie's sales. So, with a pending patent expiration, despite you know their best efforts to use legal wrangling and and new formulations and such to try and delay delay the entrant entrance of biosimilars, and
0: that has been a valiant effort on their part. Yeah,
1: and they'll continue to advance that, you know, and who knows? maybe they push back the entrance of these biosimilars by a few years by doing it, but it's, it's delaying the inevitable. So they needed to go out and, and really get something that was going to be big and, and potentially transformative to make up for the sales that could be lost to Humira, you know, a drug that has 13 billion in annual sales, um, not easy to fill. Uh, however, they did go out, they spent $21 billion to buy Pharmacyclics earlier this year to get their hands on the blood cancer drug, uh, uh, well, f- f- leukemia uh, especially, in Breveca, uh which is co-developed by Johnson & Johnson. And that drug has just been a gangbuster drug, incredibly successful, <clears throat> potentially going to get approval next year for use in the first-line setting. And that has, you know, I'd be thinking that, well, at least we can get, you know, peak sales out of that drug of, you know, five to six billion over time.
0: Yeah. And that's especially impressive when you think about the fact that they only get to retain 50% of the profits. And so if you have management saying that they could bring in seven billion in revenue just from this one drug, you're talking about that equating to a projection of peak sales of 14 billion.
1: Yeah, these drugs, again, biologics are uh, like are they're very expensive drugs, you know, and they carry $100,000 plus a year price tax. <clears throat> and now, some of those drugs, expensive drugs, don't add a lot of, well, arguably don't add a lot of value in as far as extending progression for your survival or overall survival. But in the case of Rebecca, it really does. You know the, the trial that's backing up the application for approval in the first line setting in CLL, um, chronic lymphocytic uh, leukemia, that showed an 85 percent reduction uh, in risk of death. <laughs> so, you know, this is, a, this is a very important drug. It's an expensive drug, and it certainly could generate significant revenue uh, for the company, whether or not it's enough to offset the risk to Humera. That still remains to be seen, but it's definitely one of the bigger deals of the year.
0: So there's one more drug maker deal that I wanted to highlight, and that one is Celgene and Receptos. What was the story here? This is,
1: if you look at all of these deals, and there's so many to consider, this is one of my favorite deals, um, especially if you're a growth investor uh, who's interested in, 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 you know, getting involved in a company that maybe did an acquisition that could really pay off uh, over time, uh, this is not a small deal, uh, but it's certainly much smaller than you know Pfizer's deals. Celgene agreed to pay or pay 7.2 billion to buy Receptos to get its hands on a multiple sclerosis drug named Ozanimod, and Ozanimod has already finished uh, phase two trials in which uh, it significantly reduced brain lesions, but it did so with a safety profile that was very similar to placebo. Now, that's pretty remarkable, because the market for MS drugs is shifting dramatically towards drugs that are taken orally, rather than injected, and those drugs, Tecfidera is the market share leader, another one is Novartis Galenia, another one uh, is Sanibes Baggio. These drugs generate out billions of dollars a year in sales, and this drug could conceivably be safer than those drugs with similar efficacy.
0: So, one question mark for me with this deal happened a little bit afterwards. When, when they initially announced it, I was like, oh, okay, that, that sounds great. And then, in thinking about it, um, there was some news that was released that Biogen licensed a pretty similar drug to Ozanamod um, that's also being studied for multiple scler- sclerosis and some other autoimmune diseases. And they licensed it for only $60 million upfront and about half a billion dollars in potential milestones. Which is kind of a head-scratcher to me, that Biogen could get basically the same drug, maybe, um, have not compared them in clinical trials. I mean, who knows? Maybe the receptor's drug is way better. But I, I don't know. I, it leaves me thinking that maybe Celgene overpaid. I mean, you really have,
1: you know. It's so hard to tell. Um, but I will tell you this. When you come through phase two and you have results that are as good as this, Uh, and you have a management team that's as successful as Celgene at ferreting out good potential values, needle-moving values, Uh, I tend to fall uh, in the camp of, let's give management the benefit of the doubt on this one. Um, Could this other drug also put up very strong numbers in late-stage trials? It's possible. But, right now, in my opinion, the evidence supports this being uh, the better option.
0: Yeah, I, I think you make a good point there, where cell gene management has proven that it does know exactly what it's doing. So beyond even the drug maker space within healthcare, there have been so many companies announcing M&A activity in other subsectors of healthcare. care. Um, one of the big ones was in the retail pharmacy space with Walgreens and Rite Aid.
1: Well, Walgreens uh, agreed to a, to a deal that's worth $17 billion, if you include the $7 billion in debt that was on Rite Aid's books. Um, to, to buy the third largest pharmacy operator in the country. Uh, the deal comes on the heels of you know, Walgreen integrating its merger with Alliance Boots, Boots a major uh, European pharmacy operator. Uh, Walgreen's, they're going after it. There's no getting around it. They, they, it's CVS versus Walgreen. And whichever one um, can get the biggest scale, uh, theoretically, is going to win the battle. So, we'll see how this plays out. You know, there, you know, Rite Aid has had some troubles in the past. It's only just recently emerged back to profitability. Uh, it was a pretty leveraged company. There's a lot of overlap in various markets. So, we'll have to see how many stores have to get closed um, or you know, otherwise sold off. Uh, but it's absolutely an interesting deal. You know, and one of the other things, too, Christine, is all these deals are, are happening. Uh, and why is it that they're happening now? It's probably because you know of, of the, the fear that interest rates and the cost to, to orchestrate these deals may rise as we go forward.
0: And hey, I mean, look at what happened today. I mean, the, the bump in the interest rates—like it was not huge—but I, I think a lot of these deals were orchestrated at a pretty smart time.
1: Yeah, it's it's huge, and it mar- marks the the first major policy shift uh in, in almost a decade as far as oh, yeah. it's, know, it's a
0: strong but signal for sure. It's
1: a big signal. Um it's not you're right, twenty-five basis points isn't isn't a tremendous increase. Uh but the guidance they issue today is something that people have to pay attention to. You know, and that guidance is that, you know, all things equal, you know, subject to change, all the caveats that the Fed typically says. Um, you know you could get a percentage worth of increases over the course of the next 12 months. well when you're talking about billion dollar deals, that percent can add up
0: it definitely could you're right. Um, should we be worried as investors about all this leverage?
1: Well, it really comes down to I mean leverage is bad if you know we talked last week a lot about balance sheets and ways to analyze leverage. Um, you know, debt is bad if cash flow doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, if you're taking on debt and that debt is translating into an investment that yields a lot of cash flow and you can finance that, you know, and, it, and it finance that debt uh, through that cash flow, then it's fine. Um, you know, typically speaking, though, you want to make sure that you're sticking with companies that have debt to equity ratios that are less than 100 percent, lower is better where possible. Um, and you want to, to focus on companies that the short-term, you know, uh, assets outweigh the the short-term liabilities, so that you don't have to worry about insolvency within a given year. Uh, overall, though, you know, I'm not overly concerned about the the how much leverage they're taking on. You got to take it take take it stock by stock.
0: Yeah, indeed. And Speaking of stock by stock, I'll remind everybody listening that, as always, people on the program could have interest in the stocks that they talk about. The Motley Fool could have formal recommendations for or against them. Don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. You hear me say this every single time. Do your own research. Um, before we sign off, and here's another insight to the inner workings of Fool HQ. So, I'm actually the woman behind the curtain that is our show's email account, industryfocus at Fool.com. So, I got to see the seriously impressive amount of emails that came in as a response to Monday's episode about financial and investing books. Apparently, you guys are both listeners and readers. So, way to not just rely on one of your senses. Um, but Todd and I thought it would be worthwhile to add some of our favorites to the list. Um, Todd, do you have a favorite investing or financial book?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have a library full of them, but the one that I hand out to every intern that has come in and out of my offices, both when I was working on the sell side now, uh, the various things that I do, is Market Wizards uh, by Jack Schwager. Uh, The Market Wizards is a collection of stories uh, from the leading money managers of our time. And it's easy to read. Uh, It's a great book to have in your collection. And you will learn a lot about investing, uh, trial and error, and how to succeed.
0: You know, I've never heard of that one. I'm going to have to pick it up and add it to my list. So, Absolutely
1: do so. I'll send you one.
0: Oh, awesome. (laughs) So uh, my recommendation comes with a good bit of recency bias because I just finished it less than a week ago. But I'm going to add to our list The Big Short by Michael Lewis which a lot of you have probably heard of it. It's a really fascinating account of the buildup of the housing and credit bubble during the 2000s and the wildly interesting characters behind it that saw the impending doom and made enormous amounts of money as a result. I mean, it's a fairly finance-heavy book, but it reads like a novel, and it teaches you a good deal about what goes on on Wall Street and how some of these complicated financials work behind the scenes. So highly recommend it. Todd, thanks for your contribution today, uh, both to the list and to the episode. Folks, I hope that you enjoy the books and the episode, and have a good one. We'll talk to you next week.